You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. Our focus today will be on verses 25 through 31. I'll be reading verses 15 through 31. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, in the name of Christ, we ask now that your Spirit would come and teach us Christ for the glory of Christ. Amen. When you think of Jesus being physically absent from this world, don't blaspheme with even the mildest unbelief 
despair, sorrow, regret, or disappointment. Long for the return of Christ. Eagerly anticipate and desire the beatific vision. That is the beholding of the glory of God in the glorified Christ. Absolutely. But don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Don't harbor any thought that you have something less than what the disciples enjoyed as they followed Christ. The physical absence of Christ is gospel. It's good news that meant for them and that means for us more Jesus, not less. Jesus has been teaching His disciples, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And now He's promising that the Holy Spirit will teach them. But the Helper The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So immediately, the Spirit-anointed Son, sent by the Father, is teaching them. And He's promising them that later, the Spirit will teach them. Later, on that day, The Holy Spirit will teach the disciples all that Jesus has said to them. This is why Jesus, you see, referred to the Holy Spirit as another comforter, another paraclete. Although in the economy of redemption, that's the phrase we use to speak of the work of our triune God in redeeming man. Although in the economy of redemption, we see that the persons of the Trinity have unique tasks There is an indivisible union in those specific tasks of the whole Trinity in each and every one of them. And so, whenever we looked at verse 11, we saw this in in how the doctrines of mutual indwelling and inseparable operations are indwelling one another and inseparable. The doctrine of mutual indwelling says that the persons of the Trinity indwell one another. You never deal with one of them in isolation. Where the Spirit is, well, the Father and the Son are in the Spirit. Where where the Son is, well, the Father and the Spirit are in the Son. And likewise, all, all the way around. And because that's so, naturally flowing from that, we have the doctrine of inseparable operations. It, it adds a bit to it. It, it says that, Where the Son is, not only are the Father and the Spirit present, but whatever the Son is doing, the Father and the Spirit are doing as well. They never work alone. And so in verse 11, Jesus said to them, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's the doctrine of mutual indwelling. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. The works bear testimony that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. By Jesus' works, you see the Father, you behold the Father. The Father is working in Jesus' works. That's why Jesus in John chapter 5 says, whatever He sees the Father doing, that He does. Now, the Father will say plans our redemption. The Son accomplishes our redemption. 
The Spirit applies our redemption. But though in all those things we see that one person of the Trinity is in focus, the others are still actively in the picture. When the Son was accomplishing our redemption, He was doing it in the power of the Spirit. Simultaneously bearing the Father's wrath and pleasing the Father with His perfect obedience. So the ministry of the Son is in this sense, unique. Only the Son became incarnate. Only the Son was crucified. Only the Son rose from the grave. His ministry to us, though, is a ministry of the triune God in focus from one perspective. By the Son, we know the Father, and and we know the Son by the Spirit. Here, we see the Son and the Spirit sharing the same office. Jesus teaches, the Spirit teaches. Jesus is the Comforter, the Paraclete. The Spirit is another Comforter, another Paraclete. And critical to this office of Comforter is teaching. Jesus here is wanting to comfort them with His teaching. And He's promising the Holy Spirit who will comfort them with the same teaching, teaching them His teaching. They not only share the same office and work of teaching, but note that the Spirit, verse 26, is sent in the name of the Son. What does it mean that the Spirit is sent in the name of the Son? Back up to verses 13 through 14, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me, Anything in my name, I will do it. Now, when we examined that verse, we saw that it had reference to our doing the works that Jesus did. Because He's sending us as He was sent by the Father. And it's as we're sent on this task, this mission, that we're assured that whatever we ask in His name, it's ours. The grounds of this you see in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He has all authority. Whatever we ask in His name, we can be assured of it. As we go forward in this mission, knowing He's with us. See, it's because we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that we can call out with this kind of assurance. Jesus purchased this for us by His blood. I think this helps you. That's what it means to call out for these things in His name. You think to yourself, what can I cry out in Jesus' name? Think to yourself, what did He purchase for me? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what you can cry out with confidence. I think that helps you understand how the Spirit is sent in His name. The Spirit is given to us as the purchase of the Son. That's why, verse 16, He tells us, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper. Why is this future, this greater outpouring and fullness of the Spirit that they enjoyed, why is it future? Because it comes in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
and his session at the right hand of the Father. And from that position of having received all authority and power as the God-man, the Christ, then he sends the, Christ, the, the Spirit more fully on his church. It's in Christ that we obtain our inheritance. And the Spirit is the guarantee of that inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11, 13 through 14. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So it's to the exalted Christ who died in the stead of sinners that the Father gives His Spirit to pour out on the church. Acts 2.23 Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Spirit is the gift of the Father and the purchase of the Son. And so the Spirit who occupies the same office of Christ and is sent in the name of Christ teaches us. But what does He teach us? He teaches us Christ. He occupies the same office as the Son. He's sent by the Son in the name of the Son, to teach us the Son. Verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit not only teaches us Christ's truth, He teaches us the truth of Christ. John fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. John 16, 13 through 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. By the Spirit's teaching, it's not simply that He's reminding them of Christ. It is as though Christ Himself is teaching them of Himself afresh, anew, personally. The Spirit takes up the office of Christ in the name of Christ to teach us Christ. But we do need to be careful here. To whom do these truths that we're seeing in pact here have primary and first reference? It's the apostles. Verse 26. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This has reference to the apostles. You can see the implications of it in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we, it's John the Apostle, we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. There is an immediacy to the Spirit working with the apostles, reminding them of what Christ taught them, reminding them and teaching them of Christ. And by their teaching, we have fellowship too. He continues, and indeed, our fellowship is with His Son, with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, and that's collective, may be complete. So the Spirit is our teacher too. We don't receive the Spirit immediately to bring about fresh teaching from Jesus. The Spirit's work for us is mediated through the word they received immediately. We are taught by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit-inspired Word of God. John Owen warned, He that would utterly separate the Spirit from the Word of God has as good burn the Bible. This verse is about the Spirit teaching the disciples, but it speaks to us about how the Spirit teaches us. By the words the Spirit spoke, the Spirit speaks still. It would have been wonderful to hear our Lord preach and teach, but do not think you have been given some second-rate, long-term substitute teacher. How often was it that the disciples failed to understand Jesus' teaching when He was in their presence? John 2, 22. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this and believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. You understand that John 2.22 is telling you that happened when the Spirit taught them. John 12.16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. When do they see most clearly? When do they understand Jesus' teaching? When they receive the promised comforter of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Spirit of Christ comes in the name of Christ to teach Christ that they more fully and see and know Christ. Dear saints, you have the Spirit of Christ sent from Christ in the name of Christ that you might learn Christ and not just learn about Him, but learn Him. The Spirit puts you into union with Him and by His Word you're to enjoy 
communion with Him. You're to enter into the upper room of the heavenlies, as it were, and commune with your Lord, not just to learn truth about Him, but to learn Him Himself and to learn truth from Him. Go to the Spirit-inspired Word, pleading to the Father, grant me the Spirit to teach me your Son. Learn to read your Bible, as John Owen said, meditating on God with God. Meditate on God with God. Come to the preaching and teaching of the Word in the same way. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law. Is praying, God, grant your Spirit to teach us Christ. And that's the kind of prayer you can lift up to heaven, knowing it touches the Father's heart. That's the kind of prayer that's in harmony with the promise, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And Jesus then goes on in verse 27 to speak of peace. Why is it? I think it's clear as we go along. This peace is ministered to us by the Comforter. As he teaches us Christ. What is this peace? Our notion of peace is often little more than the absence of something. Notably, noise and conflict. That's our idea of peace. But the the biblical idea of peace, of shalom, is positive, not merely negative. It's the presence of something. It means everything being as it should be under God's blessing. The garden was not a void. It was lush and flourishing. That's the concept of peace. And it grows into, it comes into bloom in Christ. Objectively, we have peace with God by Christ, in Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is But what Jesus is speaking of here is the subjective enjoying of that reality. And that becomes clear whenever he says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He doesn't merely say to you, Listen, whether or not you feel it, this peace is. He wants you to know that peace that is. What's the nature of this peace? Well, it's not like the peace that the world gives. If you want to understand something of the difference, go to Solomon and read Ecclesiastes and you'll see something of of again and again where Solomon thought, maybe this is it. No, that too was empty, vanity, smoke. That's the kind of peace this world gives. The peace Jesus gives is His peace. It's rooted in truth. It's rooted in reality. It's rooted in Him. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Do you see it there? It's not something that just is. It's true. Praise God it's true. Whether or not you ever feel like it. But on top of that, Jesus 
sends the Spirit so that you can know this peace. So the Father sends the Son so that there might be peace. And the Son sends the Spirit so that you might know this peace. It's meant to rule in your hearts. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. How is it that we know this peace? Again, it's by the Spirit. Romans 15.13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This peace means joy and blessedness in communion with your triune God. You have been reconciled and by the Spirit you're meant to know and enjoy that reconciliation. What this means is Entering in more fully to the, to the Aaronic blessing. Yahweh, bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh, lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. As a result of the Spirit's teaching, He's teaching you of these very truths that Christ is telling them in this upper room. If you're Christ, you should know something of this blessedness, this communion with your God and, and the peace that stems from it. Well, let's remind ourselves now at this point, why was it that they were troubled at all? Well, verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. It's because he's been telling them he's going away that they're troubled. You see this in 16 verses 5 and 6. Now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Before returning to Judea, so much earlier, in one way of understanding it, this timeline, we read in Matthew's account that as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew six seventeen twenty two through 23. They were greatly distressed. If they were greatly distressed then, how great must their trouble be in this moment. And Jesus is telling them not to be troubled. He said, if, if they love Him, rather than being troubled, they would rejoice. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. There are three failings that Jesus will point out to the disciples in this upper room discourse. There's a failure to know. There's a failure to believe, and there's a failure to love. The failure to love is right here. There are several places that speak of this failure to know and believe. I'll just take you to one, 14, 9, and 10. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
Now, the disciples do know, and they do believe, and they do love, but they do so imperfectly. Jesus ends this discourse by testifying both to how they do and they don't. 16, 27 through 32. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me, you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. They love, they know, they believe, but it's imperfectly, it's weak. Jesus will keep them, and he will fan that weak faith, love, Knowledge, he will fan it into flame by a spirit. The disciples failed to love because they failed to believe, and they failed to believe because they failed to know. But Jesus will send them the promised comforter who will teach them so that they know, and knowing they will believe, and believing they will love. Why should they rejoice? He tells them because he's going to his father. And as he has and will tell them, this means not only his joy, but their blessing. Because he goes to the Father, he will send the Spirit. 16.7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus' immediate answer right here, though, is more nuanced than this. There to rejoice because he goes to the Father, he tells them, For the Father is greater than I. And we could understand Jesus' meaning to be something like, if you knew where I was going, you'd be happy for me. Because I'm moving on to better things. And there's something of that, but I think Jesus is saying something much more profound. But to get at it, we need to avoid a heretical misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying first. The Father is greater than I. Jesus is God. He is truly God. He is not less God than God the Father. The Trinity is not a hierarchy of Godness dissipating as you work your way down. It's not a hierarchy of dissipating Godness with the Father at the top, the Spirit at the bottom, and the Son somewhere in between. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We rightly confess the Athanasian Creed. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. 
Whenever you want to make Jesus less God, you are dividing the essence. You are saying that the Father has more of the divine essence and the Son or than the Spirit less so. No. Not dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is one. The glory equal. The majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son. And such is the Holy Spirit. None in this trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. This is the Catholic faith. That is to say, it's the universal faith. This has been the testimony of the church always. This is... This is the profession of Christendom. All branches of Christendom. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant. Everything that's flown under the flag of Christendom has acknowledged this as the faith. So you're not only outside of Orthodoxy and the church if you confess something contrary to this. You're outside of Christendom. This is the realm of heretics and And heresies. So how then is it now that Jesus can say, the Father is greater than I? And so I'd like to introduce you to a tool in reading your Bible that's far less known than it should be in our day. Theologians call it partitive exegesis. And that's just a fancy way to say that whenever you're reading your Bible, you need to realize there's a kind of parting that you need to be doing. As you're doing your exegesis, your understanding and reading of the Scriptures. It's a fancy way of saying that whenever you're reading the Bible, you need to understand the difference between Jesus' humanity and His divinity. One person, two natures, united but distinct. Not confounded and mixed together so that you have a divinized humanity or a humanized divinity. No, one person, two natures. You need to realize the difference between when the Scriptures speak of the eternally begotten Son and the incarnate Son. And that's easy enough for us most of the time. Whenever we read that Jesus was asleep in the stern of the ship, we understand that has reference to His humanity, not His divinity. Because while in His humanity Jesus slept, in His divinity He remained holding all things together by the word of His power including his people, Psalm 121.4, Behold, he who, sleep, he, who, he who keeps is Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now in Philippians 2, 6-8, we're told that the Son took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by taking on flesh. And some have heretically suggested that where we're told there that he emptied himself, that it has the idea that he emptied himself of his divinity. That's heresy. The emptying himself is explained by the context. It's him taking on the form of a servant. Remaining what he was, God, he became what he was not, man. And it's not simply as God, but as the God-man in submission to his Father as the Christ that he says that the Father is greater than he. That's the sense of it. And I think you really begin to understand the implications of this whenever you recognize in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul is using all this kind of language 
about the first Adam and the second Adam. And he's speaking of how man, God placed uh, all things under man's feet and gave him dominion. And under the first Adam, what that meant was death and a curse. But in the second Adam, it means redemption. And so we read 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, when he, the second Adam, delivers the kingdom to God. Now, God has forever been sovereign over all. This is referring to the redemptive rule and reign of the son of David, the God-man, you see? You have to think of him not just in his divinity. You have to think of him in his, in his person as the Christ, both human and divine, delivering the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. You're not to understand by that that the Son is less than the Father. You're to understand that the second Adam is doing everything that man failed to do in your place. And that happens in full at his return when he presents all as the God-man with all things under his feet to the Father. I think that helps you understand what he's saying that they should rejoice that he's going to the Father because the Father is greater than he. It has these kind of connotations of the God-man returning to the Father and from that position of authority It would include the sending of His Spirit to gather all the ransomed home. Why does Jesus tell them this? What's His aim? Verse 29. Now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. They will believe when it takes place. What is it? It's the same thing He's spoken of on that day. When He sends the Spirit... They will believe he's gone to the Father who is greater than he. And from that position, he sent them the Spirit. They'll believe on that day that he sits at the right hand of the Father. Let's look at Jesus' focus now in verses 30 through 31. Jesus speaks to them now, telling them he will not speak much more with them. And why does Jesus do that? I think it's plain. You'll see it's for the same reason. That he's telling them everything he's telling them in this upper room discourse. He's telling them this for their comfort, for their peace, for their joy, for their faith. The reasoning that Jesus will no longer talk much with them, we'll see, is for their joy, their faith, their peace. But first we need to deal with a perceived difficulty in verses 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So it's the first and last parts of this last portion that bother many. I will no longer talk much with you. Rise, let us go from here. When and where did Jesus say these particular things? Some have proposed that what we have in the upper room discourse is an amalgam of all kinds of things Jesus had said to his disciples And they've been reordered here 
And maybe even from the original order that John wrote them in, there are people that say, well, this came later, and they switch chapters around and such. These words, to those kind of minds, this is the conclusion. It can only make sense as the conclusion. So, either things are rearranged, or what we have following this, Jesus said on the way to Gethsemane, or He said why they were in the garden. That's true, John possibly could have rearranged things for theological reasons. But I believe it's critical that we see these chapters as a unit, as an upper room discourse as a whole. And I think 17.1 and 18.1 make this inescapable. So in 17 and verse 1, you have Jesus introducing His high priestly, priestly prayer, we're told, when Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So introducing his prayer, his prayer is following these words. And you read this prayer, you read John 17 several times over, and it's clear that prayer is said in relation to everything that's happened in 13 through 16. That prayer incorporates all that teaching. And then you look at 18 in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples. So the prayer follows the upper room discourse, and the departure follows the prayer, 18 and verse 1. The main problem I have with rearrangement theories are two. First, it tries to tear apart what I think is clear God has put together. But number two, it represents, and this is probably the more uh, dangerous error that you can carry with you throughout the Bible. It's the danger of trying to interpret the text from our social conventions rather than interpreting their social conventions from the text. We read it with our, with our Western minds and we think, uh, well, they must have immediately got up and departed. I think the text tells us they didn't understand that kind of language that way. Okay, start getting ready, making preparations, we're going to leave soon. And I don't think they understood anything else from it other than that. That aside, how many times have you said, okay, we need to go, and the conversation keeps going? But what is it that Jesus is saying to His disciples here? Why will He no longer talk much with them? You sense that this is different than when He told them, I'm with you a little while longer. I will send you the Spirit. Since this is different. The reason why he'll no longer talk much with them here is not because he's going to the Father. It's more immediately. Bearing on the situation. Something else is occupying his attention. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. 13.27, we are told that Satan entered into Judas. At his arrest, we read in Luke 22.53, he told them, those who were taking him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But, it is not fear that holds Jesus' tongue in this moment. It is love. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He 
has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus will not speak much, not for fear of the evil one, but for love of the Holy One. He will not speak much with His disciples because, this is what I believe is really happening, He's going to be focusing on speaking to His Father. I think Gethsemane unlocks the meaning of what Jesus said here. Mark 14, 32-36. They went to a place called Gethsemane and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. And He took with Him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. As they go to the garden, Jesus' preoccupation is not instruction, but petition. His concern is not to be speaking with his disciples, but to his Father. Driving He who is the light of the world into the deepest darkness is love for His Father. Jesus obeys the Father in taking the cup of wrath from His hands and drinking it down to the dregs to display to the world His love for the Father. It's absolutely true that the cross speaks of Jesus' love for His people. 13 and 1 told us this. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Yes, the cross speaks of Jesus' love for His bride. But above this, it shouts His love for the Father. This is why the cross troubled Him. Because it meant the Father whom He loved perfectly. And the Father who perfectly loved Him, it meant He would experience the curse and wrath in the stead of sinners. And this reminds us, we have the Spirit because Christ purchased Him for us. And having the Spirit, we need not be troubled Because Christ was troubled in our stead. Jesus in this upper room. Bequeaths both his peace and his joy. Peace I leave leave with you. My peace I give to you. you. If you loved me you would rejoice. We'll get into that further. Jesus in this upper room bequeaths both his peace and his joy. 14.27, peace I leave with you. John 15.11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. So peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How is it that we know this peace and this joy? 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. How is it that they will learn these things so that they experience that joy and that peace? They will know that joy and peace communicated to them as the Son sends the Spirit to teach them Himself. These words that Jesus has spoken are to be ministered to us by the Spirit of truth so that they're understood and believed. When the Spirit teaches these things, they're understood, they're believed, and the result is not just that you have peace and that you have joy, you have Christ's peace and Christ's joy. The Spirit teaches you Christ. He, he grants this kind of communion with the one He's put you into union with so that you learn Him and you know His peace and His joy. Saints, do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit by thinking you have some second-rate, long-term substitute teacher because Christ has ascended and is not here. He sent His Spirit. And by a spirit anointed, uh, inspired word, the spirit takes Christ to our souls so that his peace is our peace and his joy is our joy. It didn't happen when he was physically with them speaking these things, it happened whenever he taught them by the spirit. The spirit as given to us then, does not mean less Christ. It means more Christ. And sinner, if you are here now, and you're thinking you want this peace, you want this joy, this gospel was written, John says, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Believe now and you will not only know peace, you will not only know joy, you will know Jesus' peace. You will know Jesus' joy as the Holy Spirit puts you into union with Him to commune with Christ and know Christ and learn Christ. And may it be so now. Let us pray. Father, we cry out for saint and sinner now alike. For the saints that we would know more profoundly your joy and peace being taught by your Spirit now. And for sinners, that you would grant them repentance and faith and clinging to Christ, they would know peace. They would objectively have it and subjectively know it. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.